So the most popular course in Yale's history was Psychology 157, which was called Psychology and the Good Life. And nearly a quarter of the undergraduates at Yale took this class, and the professor, Laura Santos, uh, a psychology teacher, said that they're trying to teach kids to lead a happier and more fulfilling and satisfying life. In 2013, the reason probably why they were doing this course in the first place was in 2013 they did a study and they found out that more than half of their undergraduates had sought mental health help from the university. And so one of the lessons that, that this professor was trying to get across was that a high grade, a prestigious internship, a great job, all these things do not increase happiness at all. And she says, even 10 years or so ago, our intuitions about what will make us happy, like winning the lottery or getting a grade, a good grade, is not what makes us happy. It's not what leads to the good life. And so the question this morning that we're trying to figure out is, what is the good life? What is going to lead us to the good life? Who doesn't want to live the good life? The good life is something that we all are pursuing in some way or in some fashion. It's a convictional question. When we think about what is the good life and how are we going to get the good life, we base everything around it. If you want to be rich, if you want to be successful, you're going to work long hours at the office. Maybe you want to try to win the lottery. You're going to try to do the climb up the corporate ladder. Or you could try to meet up with that person you haven't met for or seen for 20 years and join their pyramid scheme and do a get-rich-quick scheme. If you want to be in shape, if, if the good life is being in shape, being strong, being thin, whatever this being healthy is, you're going to get good sleep, you're going to eat well, you're going to exercise, you're going to diet, or you're going to take steroids or do something worse than that. We, we shape our lives around these things. If you want love and acceptance, you get married, you, or try to get married, you jump into endless relationships, you, your life revolves around your friendships and experiences. Or for some of us, we buy a lot of cats and dress them up like humans as our companions. Our country is built on the good life. It's, it's what we want, it's, it's what everybody wants. And, and something that happens without us even trying is we try to bring this idea of what the good life is into the church, the pursuit of heaven, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of morality. Basically, the whole idea is if God is happy with us, if we act right and do the right things, if we look right, if God is happy with us, then life is good. We blend this idea of the good life with the church because it feels good, it looks good to others, and it seems to make sense. But what if your good life isn't good enough? And that's the question we're going to wrestle with in our text today, because the text kind of answers this question. What if your life, your good life that you've been pursuing isn't good enough? So if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians 2, verse 11. Um, if you're using the Bibles here, it's on page 1168. And uh, we're in the NIV. If you're using a tablet or your phone or something like that, we read from the NIV version. Uh, we have sermon application guides at the end of these aisles 
right here. And if you want to follow along through that, there's some bullet points in there. There's also questions for your family, the kids, the youth, everybody. We kind of go through the same thing every week. And so it's a good way to connect and talk through, your, um, through the sermon with your, with your family. So Galatians 2, verse 11. So what we're following in here is Paul is kind of talking about this very public dispute that happened in the church, okay? And so Paul and Peter, two pillars of the church, are, have a very public argument. This is like Pastor John and Pastor Henry at the outdoor baptism service, and they're yelling about how we do baptism with their mics on. They like forgot to put their mics off. And it's very obvious and very awkward, and there's a lot of tension. You're probably going to be sitting there, you're going to have your friend or your coworker or your neighbor, and you're going to be like, man, I wish I didn't bring you to church this morning. And I'm looking at other churches now, officially. Um, but Paul isn't doing this because of his pride. He's not fighting for himself. And this public dispute is not because he's trying to win an argument. He is fighting for the gospel. The gospel is at stake in Peter and some of the other uh, people's lives here. And, so, and we're gonna, that's where we're jumping in. So we're going to jump in in verse 11. This is Paul recalling this argument in a letter he wrote to a church he founded in Galatia. So in verse 11 it says, When Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when he arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that their hypocrisy and in their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, this is awkward on a couple of levels because, well, one, it's, this is a Jewish-Gentile thing, and this is really hard for us to understand because we've been a country for just a couple hundred years. This was a fight and a tension that had been going on for thousands and thousands of years. This is temple Judaism, like the peop this is like the people of God versus the Gentiles. And so it's going to be hard for us to understand, but if we look in the Old Testament, we see that there are story after story after story. Think David, think Daniel, think Esther, all these stories of where we see Jewish people going against Gentile oppression against Gentile norms. Gentiles were dirty. Gentiles were supposed to be apart from them. They had ceremonial laws that separated them from, Jew from the Gentiles. The Gentiles were oppressing them. The Roman government was oppressing them. They'd been oppressed for a long time, and they were looking for a Messiah that would free them from these Gentiles. You look in Scripture that Gentiles were called dogs. And again, this is not something that makes sense in our culture because we share our ice cream with dogs nowadays. But these were talking about, they were like rats. They were, they were dirty. They didn't want to go near them. And so when he brings this up and, and he's talking about how Jesus came and he's made things different, Jesus has came on, he's the Messiah, but he's saying things and doing things that they did not even, they didn't expect. And things were, that were deeply ingrained in Jewish life were changing. Peter was Jewish. And if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked when, when Peter had this vision and where animals were being dropped down and, and God said, kill and eat. And he's like, no way. I would never kill and eat things that are unclean. He says, don't call things that I call clean, unclean. 
And he was talking about not only eating foods, but associating with Gentiles. And he saw a vision. He went to Cornelius' house, and there was a bunch of Gentiles in there. And he walked in his house, which was forbidden for Jewish men to do. He ate with them, which was forbidden and dirty for, for Jewish people to do. Preached the gospel, and the Holy Spirit came on these Gentiles. It was a pivotal moment in church history and in Peter's life. Now, he's been living like this for some time now. Peter had been hanging out with the Gentiles, eating with them, preaching with them. They were living in community. Things seemed to be going really well. If this was an ending of a movie, we'd see uh, Peter and all the Gentiles walking off into the sunset, and things would be great. But then the bad guys come in and change things up. So this is the circumcision group. We, we're, we're introduced to this circumcision group. Um, and this is a powerful group. It was a powerful enough group for Peter, who was an apostle, to get embarrassed and to walk away from what he was doing. Even Barnabas, one of Paul's associates, walks away and lives in this hypocrisy. So who is this cir circumcision group? We don't really know the names or the people but the group isn't like this advocacy group for circumcision, like men who are like, hey, we need more of it. No, this was a group of people who were Christians. They were part of the church. And so they, they, were, they were Christians, but they were adding on to what Jesus had already done for them. So Paul is preaching, if you want to become a Christian, if you want to be saved, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are saved by his grace, not by your works. And this was really confusing for a lot of the Jewish people. And so there's a circumcision group that said, if you want to be Christians, you believe in Jesus Christ to save you, but then you have to follow the law. You have to follow the eating laws, the separation laws. And, and if you're a Gentile, you kind of have to fall into that. Otherwise, you're not a Christian. Believe in the gospel, follow the law, then you are saved. And Paul wasn't having any of that. So in verse 14, he says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's saying, Peter, you are embarrassing yourself. Peter, you are wasting your time. You have completely flip-flopped. This is, this is like lunchroom behavior where Peter, he's, he's kind of the cool kid sitting with, you know, his, his Sunday school friends, and then like the older kids come in, and he completely abandons them. He only hangs out with them when it's convenient for him. When some social or religious pressure comes, like his, his biases and his, and his racism kind of boil to the surface, and he slinks away. And he points, Paul points to the gospel and, and how this is Peter's mistake in verse 15. He says, We who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because the works of the law, no one will be justified. And so he's saying, listen, Peter, you know this. This is a reminder of the gospel. Like the whole reason Jesus came wasn't so that we could keep trying to earn it through the law. The law was abolished. This is not what it's about. It's not about earning your salvation anymore. Jesus has already done that. And so this is, this is Peter's view. 
And he says in, in uh, verse 17, but if, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. And so P, uh, Paul is saying, listen, salvation is free in Jesus Christ. We don't need to justify ourselves by the law anymore. And so the, the other opposite thing that he kind of talks about here in verses uh, 17 and 18 is like, okay, so th- what's the opposite view? And this is probably what the circumcision group was saying. So are you saying that if you become a Christian and we don't have to do the law, we can just live however we want? Like if we become Christians, does that mean we, like, we don't have to act right? We don't have to do anything. We can just be like, hey, this is a get out of hell free card. And let's just go and live however we want. That's called cheap grace. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writes about this cheap grace. It's this idea that when you're saved by grace, you can live however you want. You can live like you weren't ever a Christian in the first place. And the answer is not cheap grace. And the answer is not living by the law. So what is the answer? And that's where the tension is. What is the good life? What is the good life? And and in verses 19 through 21, Paul says the key to what it looks like to live the good life, not by the law, not by cheap grace, but through the true gospel. So it says in verse 19, for though the law died, for, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for, it, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And so these verses draw out four ways that the good life can be lived. So if you want to live the good life in Christ, in, in what Jesus has done for us, the first thing that you have to do to, give, to live the good life is you have to die. It says, for, though, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God, I have been crucified with Christ. And so dying, being dead, it sounds harsh. It doesn't sound much like the good life or the start of what the good life is. It takes away individuality. It takes away you making decisions. It takes away you being the center of your Christian faith. It's this countercultural. It wasn't acceptable culturally thousands of years ago when it was written, and it's not acceptable today as well. But dying to self means what a lot of people think it means is, is what Carrie Underwood says is Jesus take the wheel. And I think, I think that is a good sentiment and a good way to think like, oh yeah, God's driving my life. But giving God control, dying to self, not living out of your own strength and your own powers, not just giving Jesus control when things are bad or when things are hard or when things are unmanageable, but is making him king of every area of, area of your life. It is living in line with the gospel. Dying to self means your decisions, your inclinations, 
and motivations. They're not in the passenger seat with God driving. They're not in the back seat. They're not even in the trunk. They are completely dead. One way to find out if you are dying to self is if you ask yourself this one question. This is a simple question, but it's one of the most difficult questions to ask yourself and to look at in your life. Are you living in every area of your life in line with the gospel? In other words, does Jesus' life, death, and resurrection infuse every aspect of your life? That's a tough question to ask. Because the opposite of that is if you are not living in line with the gospel, it means that you have graduated from the gospel. Are you living as if, if the gospel functionally was the thing that saved you, but ever since then you have moved past it and, and you are moving on to deeper parts of the Christian faith? And if we're living like that, we are living like the circumcision group here. And I believe that a lot of us do, myself included, we, we think the gospel saved us, and then we move on to deeper things, and we start trying to earn God's favor through how we act and what we do, and we try to live as if we're still alive when he says, no, we need to die to self. And the best way to recognize if you are still doing this and if you have moved past the gospel is when you want to start doing something to, to like look better, to be good, or to add something in our life, or if you want to cut something out of your life, you just try really, 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 really hard to do it. What in your life are you confusing behavioral modification for a right relationship with God? Are you trying to stop yelling at your kids or stop yelling at your wife or your siblings? Are you, are you trying to stop being a jerk to your coworkers? Are you trying to get better at this, maybe get more reading your Bible more or praying more? Are you trying really hard to do these things, to, to look good, to be better, to, to get in a right relationship with God, to, to live the good life? And I think it's really interesting when you look at this passage, Paul's not saying, hey, Peter, you need to stop being a racist. You need to stop being a jerk to these people. You need to stop. You need to stop. You need to work really hard at not being racist. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, you are not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. He takes it deeper. Does he want him to stop being like that? Yes. Does he want us reading our Bibles? Yes. Does he want us to stop being jerks to people? Of course he does. But if we just try, 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 we are not living in line with the gospel. We're just hitting symptoms. Okay? So that's the first part. We need to die to self. But if we want to live in the good life, we have, something has to live. So if we want to live the good life, Christ has to live in you. He says, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And this is a really tough one. In is such a deep word when it's talking about Christ living in you. I got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and they're both really rough on, on their parents and on their toys. And my son, he has this, this uh, beach ball that he's obsessed with. Like he'll walk around the house. He's one. He's stumbling around, tripping over things because the beach ball is in front of him. But he loves it. He's throwing it up in the air. He's bouncing it around. Now, imagine one day if it pops some way because he's being rough with it. 
or he jumped on it and it broke somehow. He'd come up to me and start yelling and screaming and crying. He'd be like, you know, he'd be telling me to fix it or get me a new one or let's, let's, let's fix the situation, Dad. And what if I told him, I was like, now listen, Hank, we just had a, a family member die, a distant family member, and they left us a fortune in an inheritance. And not only are we going to get you a new uh, beach ball, but I'm going to get you, I'm going to build a room onto our house, and it's just going to be full of beach balls. It's going to be called the beach ball room, and it is going to be yours. Now, he's not going to understand it, is he? He's going to be like, ah, I don't, okay, whatever. Like, he barely can talk, so he's just going to be like, no, just fix my beach ball, fix my beach ball. When there's something so big, something so awesome, he would not understand. He'd be focusing on just the beach ball. And that's what Christ in us means. It is something so big, something so incredible that we often forget it and we don't understand how much is available to us. It says in Ephesians 3, 16 through 19, Paul is, is, is writing to the Ephesian church this exact thing, talking about what does it mean, how can we live as Christ in us. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all of, Lord's holy, all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ and to know his love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. That is incredible. If you are a Christian, you are filled with the fullness of God. And he's encouraging them, look at how wide and how deep and how amazing this is. If we don't figure this out, if we don't see that, we're going to fret over the little things in life. We're going to worry, we're going to be anxious over the little things, our parenting, our work, sexuality, everything that our life touches, if the gospel is not infused, if we are not living in line with the gospel, if we're not living as if we are dead to self and Christ living in us, these things are going to distract us and we're going to be like my son who is so worried about this ball when there's an entire room full of beach balls waiting for them. Think about this. If you want the good life at your workplace... If you want the good life at your workplace, you're not going to find satisfaction in, in your boss's uh, approval of you or in, in how fast you're moving up the corporate ladder. You're not going to look at your coworkers and use them as a means to an end. Is that hard to do? Yeah, it's impossible to do on your own. That's why Christ needs to live in you. Parenting. If you want Christ to live in you in your parenting, if you want to live the good life as a parent, you are not going to have godlike control over your kids in every aspect of their lives. I know I have a three and a one-year-old, and I don't know what it's like to have teenagers or middle schoolers, and I can't imagine how hard that is. But I know that having Christ in us, we know that God has control of our kids. Even we don't understand how the weird stages that come with growing kids. Think about even our sexuality. When Christ is in us, we don't view our body as something just to be wasted or to, you know, jump around from relationship to relationship. Our body is a temple and that Christ is living in us and that changes everything. What we put into our minds and, and what we look at, 
what we consume, and how we use our bodies, though Christ in us changes how we view that. Race relations, like Peter here. He doesn't need to feel superior to the Gentiles. We don't need to feel superior to other races or other people or other socioeconomic stages in people's lives because Christ, when we were nothing, he came and saved us and made himself low and saved us and dwells in us. This applies to marriage and friendships and everything in our lives. The good life, this side of heaven, doesn't mean an easy, charmed, or pampered life. But a life that is dead to self, lived through Christ, and then in faith, which is our next, our next point. So if you want to live the good life, you have to die to self, you have to have Christ live in you, and you have to live by faith. It says, now that we're truly, now we're truly dead to self, okay? So if Christ is living in us and, and we're dead, like, we should think that we're okay, right? Like, things should be good. Like, we should be able to end at that if Christ, like, Jesus is living in us. He says, the life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. And that's exciting because we, we're excited about the first two parts, and then this is where it starts getting a little bit more practical. What does it look like to live in this world in faith with Christ living in us and dead to self? And we go into our schools, we go into our work, and we go into our neighborhoods, into our homes, and we want to influence them for Christ because Christ is living in us, and it's exciting. But oftentimes, when we go into these places and in these realms where, where maybe there's not a Christian influencer, there's not Christians there, we end up, instead of influencing others, we get influenced. And we start looking again and again for our good life in something that's not Christ. Our good life gets hijacked, and we get in a vicious cycle of trying to find the good life and things apart from Christ. Look at our media. Look at everything around us. Look at the music we listen to that's out there. The movies. They are all trying to tell you what the good life is. The answer is not to like stop watching movies and only watch Christian movies and only listen to Christian music and only hanging out at church Monday through Friday and Sunday and then take a rest on Saturday. That's not the answer. The answer is recognizing the stories that are being told around us. Look at a, deter, a, a commercial for laundry detergent and put it up to a commercial for a cruise line. They are the same exact message. If you go on our cruise, your family's gonna connect and it's gonna make you happy and you're gonna get the rest that you need. If you buy our detergent, you are gonna get the stains out, you're gonna smell better, your whole family's not gonna have to worry about their dirty clothes, and you guys can all just be so happy together. It's the same exact message. This is what they're telling you. If you buy our product, if you go on our cruise, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, that is what the good life is, and that is constantly around us everywhere we go. So what do we do with that? Paul's saying um, that, we, that we need not only a new life in Christ, but we need a whole new story. And faith is that new story. 
Living by faith is fighting against those disordered desires that try to take over again. The reason I do youth ministry and the reason why I love youth ministry is because of the impact that it had when I was in high school and middle school. Being a Christian in high school and middle school is really, really hard. There are stories everywhere that are trying to like get you off and, and, and distract you. There's visions of the good life in a lot of ways in high school and middle school as well. But then I realized, you know, I don't remember any of the talks. I don't remember. I just remember getting kicked out every week in middle school and getting in trouble and my dad getting phone calls. I remember those parts, but I, I don't remember the talk. I don't remember many of the trips, but I remember that there were leaders there that loved me and that were pointing me back to what the good life is and what to put my desires into. And I remember that in college because college, it is hard to be a Christian. I was, you know, I, I was like, okay, what, what do I do? Well, I go back to community because that's where I found my life being reoriented towards the good life in high school. And then I realized, you know what? When you graduate high school or college, it's really hard to be a Christian in the workplace. And I remembered, you know, go back. Go back to faith. Go back to community. Go back to being reminded of what the good life is. And I realized, oh my gosh, it's hard to be a Christian when you work in a church. It's hard to be a Christian when you're a parent. It's hard to be a Christian no matter what stage you're in in your life. That's why we need each other. That's why we need community. That's why we gather each week to remember what God has done, but look forward to what he will do. No product is going to make our kids into little angels or going to make our families connect in a magical way. No vacation is going to give us an ultimate satisfying rest. No job or friendship can ever give you what you want ultimately that we can only find in Christ. All right, so the last point, to live the good life. If you want to live the good life, you have to live in his love. That's the last point. He says, I live by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Living in his love means that you're living a life of gratitude. This is the tension of living law, cheap grace. This is kind of the, the way to go. Live in gratitude. The good life in Jesus means that you have Jesus and you are made right with God, not by anything you have done, but what everything Christ has done. You are freely loved. You are freely accepted because of Jesus, not because of anything you could do. And Jesus isn't sitting up in heaven saying, look what I did for you. Dance. Make me happy. I deserve this. No, he is not. He's... You are, have favor with God. Why? Because Jesus has favor with God. Your sins are dead. Why? Because Jesus took those sins on the cross, and you are no longer under condemnation if you are a Christian. You no longer have to have guilt if you are a Christian. 
you are able to live out of the outflow of love and gratitude because Jesus is living in you. We try so hard to live the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, all these things. It is impossible unless Christ is living in you. Christ is the one working and active in you. Good works that we do are from Jesus, not from ourselves. When we do them, we're doing them out of gratitude, not out of proving ourselves to God. We don't have to earn or prove anything. We don't need to walk on our tiptoes around God and hope he's pleased with us. We don't have to justify ourselves to the opinions of others. Why? Because we have the love and the acceptance of the creator of the universe. This is a crazy, radical message, and it is really, really hard to live out. And it's really hard to do an application when you say, don't try so hard. But it, this is a whole mind change. This is a whole changing of your mind, and you'll know you hit your heart when you can answer this question, okay? I'm going to give you two scenarios. Okay, the first scenario is, imagine you wake up really early in the morning, like, and you feel fresh, and you read your Bible for like an hour and pray, and you still have time to go on a run or go to the gym. And then you still have time because you woke up so early and you did your quiet time, you get home and you help your wife get the kids out, or your husband get the kids out to school, and you go to work and you get there, and when you walk in, you have a promotion waiting for you. And you are pumped. You go and you're like, oh man, I get a better office. You get a part, people are buying you lunch. You don't have to pay for lunch and you don't have to eat that lunch that you packed, which is always a good thing. And so you get, you get um, a lunch paid for you. Things are great. And you go home and you're telling your kids come home and they're happy and, for some reason. And, <laughs> and you're like, let's go out for a steak. And you go and everyone gets a big old steak. And because you got more money, it doesn't even matter how much you spend. And then once you get done with that, like, oh, like your, your kids, they told you about their day and it was amazing and it was, they were happy to be with you and they saw their high school friends and they were like, yeah, this is my dad, this is my mom, you know, like things are going really, really well. You go home, the kids go to bed, you're celebrating, you have a nice romantic evening with your wife or your husband, you go to bed, okay? So that's day one. The next day, because you maybe stayed up a little too late, you sleep past your alarm. Things, you wake up, you're immediately on the wrong side of the bed. This is your first day of your promotion. You rush to work, you almost get a speeding ticket. You just got a warning, thankfully. But you get into work and your boss is like, really? I give you a promotion and the first thing that you do is you're late? And so the whole day, everyone's just kind of like, everything's going past. You didn't get your coffee, so you're just drinking Folgers all day because that's all that's available on the new floor. And, and you're just like, oh my gosh, this is a rough day. And you don't understand your job that well. And ev everything's hard. And you go home, and you're just angry. Your wife's like, oh, how was your day? And you're like, fine. And you go upstairs, and you throw your work clothes, and you just stay up there until the, the kids get home. And they're not, they're moody too. It, yesterday was just a dream. They're just, they're yelling at you. They're not talking. They're sitting in their rooms. You go to bed. You don't really even talk to your spouse that night. Now, which day, okay, you got two days, one day after another. Which day are you closer to God? 
Which day are you closer to God? The day that you woke up and everything was good and you had your quiet time and you had your exercise or the day that you forgot to do your, and you were angry the whole time? Which day are you closer to God? And if you are living in line with the gospel, your answer should be you are loved fully and freely in the same both days. So how do we cultivate that? How do we cultivate an idea that God is happy with us whether I am having the best day or the worst day? How do we cultivate like not trying to earn God's favor because God's favor is already given to us if you are a Christian through Jesus? We need to change the story. This is not about effort. This is not about you doing this and gaining God's approval. But a lot of times we need to start changing the story around us. We need a new rhythm. Some of us just need a new rhythm. To change your mind, to change the way you think, oftentimes you may need to wake up early and read your Bible and pray. It could be the most radical thing that you do in your entire life is have a regular time where you get up, read your Bible, and pray. Get to know Jesus. Get to know what he's saying. Not to gain his approval, but to know him more. To be thankful more. To live in his love more. Maybe you recognize there's bitterness in your heart or you're trying to, to, to gain others' approval or there's something going on that you're working through. Maybe you need to have a, a, a time where you write out a prayer when you're like, man, I'm trying to gain God's approval through, uh, I'm trying to look good. I'm not being honest in community. I'm trying to position myself above other people. Whatever it is in your life, Maybe you need to have a prayer journal or something just to write it out. Maybe putting verses around the house that, that, that take you out of the story that is being told and puts it in the story of the Bible. Instead of sitting in shame and guilt, because a lot of times when we sin, when we mess up, when we have relational tension, we sit in shame and guilt and we think, man, I messed up. I am the worst person ever. Why do I keep messing up? Gosh, God must not like me. I must be the worst Christian out there. I wish I could be like so-and-so. One of the things as we're sitting in shame and guilt, if you are a Christian, there is no need for shame and guilt. All that has been paid for. And so what can we do? We can immediately start recognizing. When I start feeling shame and guilt as a Christian, I need to thank God for his grace that I am loved and I am accepted freely, not by anything I can do. Just thank God for Jesus. Maybe when you start feeling that shame and guilt, instead of sitting on it, you confess your sin to others. And you share that. Why? Because you, you may look stupid in front of somebody. But again, your acceptance is not from other people. You are accepted by the God of the universe. Why does it matter if someone thinks less of you? And if they're a Christian, hopefully they don't think less of you. Maybe we need to confess, and then we need to move on. Maybe some of us need to forgive somebody who's confessed something to us. That's, that's really hard, too. And then talk about it in community. You need to be constantly built up and reminded. And lastly, if you are, aren't a Christian, and you're tired of trying to prove yourself, and you're tired of not feeling accepted or loved, and you're trying to find it in all these different places, and you are running the rat race, Maybe 
you, you're functionally living like a Christian, but inside you've never really given your life to Christ, maybe your opportunity this week is to give your life to Christ. If that's the case, write baptism in your, in your uh, worship guide because that's the next step, and that's a conversation that needs to be had later on. What's warring inside of you, and what new rhythms do you need to add to kill it? We're all on a journey, though. This is the good thing. Think about Peter. We're not going to get this perfectly this week. We're not going to get it perfectly in our lifetimes. Peter was an apostle. He hung out with Jesus. He wrote parts of the Bible, and he still messed up. Like, what hope do we have? Well, we have Jesus. That's the hope that we have. And we're all on a journey, whether you're a baby Christian, whether you've been a Christian your whole life, or even if you are an apostle, you are on a journey of recovery from trying too hard to please God. And we're all in it together, and we need each other. Peter needed Paul, and we need each other. We need to gather and encourage each other and remember what God's grace is and what he's done for us. Let's pray.